everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Buda Biberai. She was elected last year as the Commonwealth Attorney in Loudoun County, Virginia. She ran as a progressive reformer and became the first new prosecutor in Loudoun County in 16 years. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much. So um, tell us about what the transition has been like uh, to prosecutor. From a um, perspective as far as it being one from philosophical, it really is not a transition, so to speak, because we've always been, when we've done defense work or represented our clients in the private practice, I've always looked at how to solve problems and also to see what the impact is to the community. So from that perspective, there really isn't much of a transition from the practical day-to-day. The transition has been uh, uh, very interesting and trying to figure out is how we could encourage those within our team uh, to think alike as well as to encourage the court to see what we're doing and rather than viewing it as it being this novel idea, rather treating it as it being one with transparency as well as uh, one indicating that it's a common sense approach. And I understand that uh, there was quite a bit of staff turnover right as you first took over. That is correct. Our office has traditionally 19 attorneys. And uh, by the time I came on, we had invited nine to stay on board. Oops. And what has that uh, transition been like? It's been uh, interesting because in Northern Virginia, we've had four major changes in, uh, I'm sorry, we've had changes in four communities in the Northern Virginia area that also underwent uh, first-time Commonwealth attorneys coming from a traditionally non-prosecutor position. So that challenge has been where there was a lot of turnover in all of the offices, so we were all kind of fighting for quality uh, attorneys. And um, describe your background. From a professional perspective? Yeah. Okay. I started practicing in 1993, and I came out of law school and opened my own private practice. I did predominantly criminal defense, civil prosecution, as well as what we call guardian at light and representation. That basically is where we represent the best interests of children who are involved with the court system, either as a ward of the state, or it could be a child caught up in a custody 
litigation matter, uh, or it could be somebody who's caught up in the criminal justice system who doesn't have the right familial support, as well as for the elderly who are in a compromised situation where they are being uh, abused or taken advantage of by another and we're there to uh, protect their interests. So that was what I did for about 26 years. Of the 11 years towards the latter end of that experience, I also had the benefit of being a substitute judge in our general district courts. So I was able to view the criminal justice system from the perspective of a judge and seeing how different cases were handled by different prosecutors or because of the accused being different individuals. And I just saw it. I witnessed the disparity firsthand from the observer perspective versus the attorney perspective. Um, That was very enlightening. And why did you decide to run for prosecutor? I literally had had enough. I am a member of the community. I've been a member of the community for over 24 years. And I didn't think we were using our resources wisely. And that is we weren't being successful oriented. We weren't being solution oriented. Basically, we were just focusing on punitive. And I didn't think that that's where our dollars were being best invested. Um, We had cases where property crimes, we had people who were getting, you know, literally 15 plus years to serve for a crime that was um, committed while being either under the influence of some drugs or alcohol or because they had a history of usage um, that we didn't address the problem. What we did is we just addressed the behavior and I saw that we were wasting a lot of money and we were just being really cookie cutter in how we handle these cases. And I thought that we lost the humanity. Um, I was at a good place in my professional career as well as personally in my life that I literally was looking for someone else to be able to run so that I could support them. And I didn't find someone who was willing to do so. And then I became self-reflective and figured, why am I asking someone else to do something that I should be doing? And therefore, I chose to run. I'm laughing because your words are almost uh, identical to uh, a guy who ran in my home county who uh, looked around, tried to find somebody to run, couldn't find somebody, and said, well, I, I can't ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't do. So he ran. And that's really what it is. You, you realize you're being a hypocrite um, and deciding that why not take all that benefit and grace that you got from your community and when they supported you in your professional development and the good you were able to do, why not now take it on a grander scale? Because we, as defense attorneys, we could do amazing things on a one-on-one basis for our clients. But within the prosecutor's office, you could do some amazing things on a larger volume and scale for the community. So describe what the campaign was like. Uh, the process or the issues? Um, both. You can't steal my question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the process was uh, a bucket of crazy. I've never been involved in politics to the degree, obviously, that it takes to be in a campaign and definitely not to be the candidate. Uh, I also had the plausible deniability for politics because I was, as a substitute judge, I have the same conditions and restrictions as a regular sitting judge. So we can't play politics. You can't get engaged. You could vote, but you can't do much more than that. And then being a candidate, uh, it made me realize how much I really did not know 
how little people understood about our criminal justice system. Because I dealt with people on a day-to-day basis and because they themselves or their family members were involved, they became fairly well-versed quickly. But that was not the common experience of our community. So we spent a lot of time trying to share with them, you know, what does the criminal justice system do, what it can do, and then how do we need to be able to address it so that from a large perspective, we are addressing the needs of the community, not just punishing the person who committed it. So we we talked about that. And then the really cool thing about it was so many people were on board with that. They saw once you had a conversation how we were wasting not only like financial assets, but we were wasting human assets. We were taking people who otherwise could, with some assistance, be returned to the community and be productive contributors. And we were treating them like throwaways. You know, we, we discarded you. We put you in jail. We took away your job. By, and it's, again, it's, it's as a result of their actions. But in our responses and reaction, what we were doing is we were making them then not able to be successful when they returned to the community. So that loss continued for our community. Um, so those are things that we were able to share within the community. And people literally, I mean, for starters, people of good nature to begin with. So they also saw how that was an investment that we needed to make proactively in our community. Um, so, you know, that was it. The talking to people all the time and, you know, how gracious people were for allowing you to be in their homes, to be able to take their time to talk to you about the issues, take their time to help you knock on doors, raise money, um, be surrogates for your vision. That was, uh, I don't know if I could really qualify or quantify it, or to put a, a value on it other than to say it was friggin' amazing. Um, it surprised the heck out of me how you see people who didn't know you 10 minutes ago be a champion for you and alongside you. And that was that was a very rewarding uh, experience to realize how much investment people had in you. Who did you run against and why do you think you won? Um, for starters, I actually ran initially against the incumbent, which is a 16-year um attorney who, I'm sorry, a prosecutor who was your traditional prosecutor, you know, uh, what I call kind of cookie-cutter disposition, just processing cases, not really looking at what the impact to the community is. Um, so in 2018, when I announced that I was going to run, uh, he ran on the Republican ticket. Obviously, he was a, a male, because I said he. Um, and it just became... a part of the tenor of the community where we were looking for somebody different to be able to represent the community. And he was part of the old school. So uh, he was advised that that was not going to bode well for him. Uh, there was some political maneuvering made, which he then got elected to be advanced to become a judge on our circuit court, that that position was going to be effective in November of 2019. Therefore, he didn't need to run. It wasn't going to run. So in uh, February of 2019, his chief deputy, Nicole Whitman, who had been in his office for about 13, 14 years, uh, decided to run. So I ran against her. And um, I think I ended up going head to head. She initially was trying to tout that she was innovative in her prosecutions and was very supportive of community programs. Um, but as you got deeper into the campaign, the true nature of how they prosecuted came out, and it was just, again, the old traditional, we're going to do it because we're going to be tough on crime, and we're going to punish people, and we're going to send them away, and I think that didn't really resonate the way it used to with our community. We're very uh, highly educated, 
highly successful community, have great opportunities, we're a very safe community. So all the good reasons why we can do things differently is because we're not, um, you know, fighting day to day just to survive and accept in a safe community. We have the luxury of being traditionally safe so that we can invest our resources in making things better rather than just locking people up. And for those who don't know, where is Loudoun County? We are approximately 35, 40 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. And Loudoun also borders uh, part of Maryland. So we literally uh, have borders with Maryland and D.C. and West Virginia. So we're in the northeastern side. And is it traditionally a conservative area? It is very much a conservative area. Um, and then um, what things have you implemented so far? Uh, what we've done is, is, for starters, we don't have uh, policies in our office, and this is what I mean by that. This office does not have a base of data collection, so we have anecdotal history as to how things got done and why they got done a certain way, but we don't have data to sit down and say, in these types of cases, this was the action or disposition of a matter, and this is kind of what the demographics of the parties involved. We have none of that. So we really can't sit here and say, okay, this is what our policy is going to be because policy should be based on data. It should be evidence-based. So what we've done is we've implemented what we call guiding principles. So we look at is the following. What was the offense that was committed? So what did the person the accused do? Then the big consideration is what is the impact to the community? How does it affect our community? Then we look at, in response, what do we need to be able to get that person to comply, to be successful? And in consideration that, what we want to do is use the least amount of resources and force to get that end result. So let me give you a, a hypothetical. In Virginia, an assault and battery basically is what we call an offensive touching. If I poke you in the arm, that could qualify as a conviction for assault and battery. If I punch you numerous times, as long as I don't do a malicious wounding, I still am convicted of an assault and battery. But the harm to the community and the harm to individuals engaged, there's a huge difference in that. So what we want to do is we want to assess each case under those criteria and figure out is what is the best disposition. The person who poked, maybe that is something that what we should do is to be able to say, let's figure out what you need to do, what do you need to make the victim in that case whole? Is it an apology? Is it some community service? Where do we need to go with that? With a person who has harmed somebody physically and or emotionally, then what do we need to do there? And, and what will it take for us to get you to not do it again? So that's what we added differently in, in our office right now is that we, we take that perspective and we use our guiding principles. It doesn't matter if it's a misdemeanor. It doesn't matter if it's a felony that we should still be able to come to a better answer because we're addressing the harm to the victim because their interest and their safety is primary. We're taking this to the considerations to the person. How did they get here? If it's a drug or a mental health basis, we need to address that because locking somebody up and returning them to the community without services or treatment, that just creates this never-ending cycle that all we do is keep seeing the same faces and we wonder why nothing's changed because we haven't changed anything. So that's what we want to be able to do is use our resources within the community to best situate somebody for success. 
Now, we've uh, interviewed a few people that have been wrongly convicted in Virginia, and there are some kind of unique state laws in terms of criminal justice. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there's there's no uh, parole, correct? Ah, now you're going to make me all depressed. But yes, that is correct. So back in uh, 2006, uh, and it was the trend in, in, uh, throughout the U.S., where the thought process was that parole uh, created this lack of proof in what they call sentencing. They came out with this truth and sentencing uh, requirement so that if you, a judge gave you a sentence, then you were expected to serve that sentence. You didn't get this discount like in the old days under parole, where it was a portion of that. What people failed to see is that back then, in, uh, when you got sentenced by a judge, it's assumed as a bad check case. The judge could literally give you 10 years knowing that you were only going to serve a sixth of it, right? So that's why you got those harsh sentences in the old days, because the expectation was that you would be eligible for parole. You would be released in, uh, you know, under maybe a year and change, which would might have been the more appropriate sentence. Well, when they changed the laws and they, they took away parole, what happened is you didn't take away the mentality of the judges who were still giving numbers like that. So now what you end up doing is you have people who are on the uh, Department of Corrections side. And obviously with the felony, you are serving 85% of your sentence. So if you did get a 10-year sentence for somebody writing a bad check or, or a property crime like that, you were serving the majority of that time. So when they did away with parole, they failed to come back and re-educate people as to how to provide what, what I call a real sentence for the real crime. Don't just pick a number out of the air because it sounds like it's the right number. Understand that that impacts that individual, that impacts our community because those people are family members. They could be parents. They could be employees of individuals. They could be neighbors. They serve the purpose in our community that when we send somebody out of the community for a long period of time for a nonviolent offense, what we're doing is we're literally, we are um, crippling them in their ability to be able to return to our community be productive because everybody else's life has continued. Theirs has stayed in place as far as the communities come back. So when they come back, their kids could be adults. Um, their jobs are obviously forever gone. Whoever they were living with may not have a place for them anymore. So we create all this instability, which then increases the chances that they're going to recidivate. So if I'm not mistaken, there, there were at least three progressive prosecutors elected in Virginia last year. Are you sensing kind of a, a shifting tide? Yes, and not only in Virginia, but I think we're seeing it nationally because we've, what we've done is this. Uh, and I, I'll, I'm going to change the word like in progressive uh, or reformers and stuff like that, really what it is. It's just taking a look at what we do in the criminal justice system with an innovative view. It's a common sense approach. It's a cultural approach. It's a community approach. We're not just looking at the person who committed the offense and say, damn, here it is, and boom, we punish them and, and we stop looking at the effect. No, we're looking at what the needs of the victims are because the victims also have to feel whole. And that's a lot of times it's not just by hearing that somebody got the maximum in a sentence. They want to know that that person is not going to come back and do it again. How do you do that? By affording the right measure of punishment as well as services. Because that, at the end of the day, is what makes the community safe is if we trust the system. So victims want to trust the system that there will be accountability, but also that it would be proportional. 
Then you have the issue as to what we discussed earlier as to the effect on the families and the communities. So what we're doing as these uh, new progressive prosecutors is, as I said, looking at it innovatively by saying, what do we need to do um, to let the community know what is going on? And that's by having transparency. A community that lives in the dark really doesn't know how to trust a system. And our criminal justice system is not to be absolutely trusted. It's not, the, it's not an absolutely perfect system. It's probably the best system in the world, but it's imperfect. And as community members, we have to show what those imperfections are and work towards making a better uh, system for everybody involved. And that's the transparency. And this is what I think the new prosecutors bring to the system is that we're going to show you what is not working. And it's not for any other reason other than we want to improve the system. And then we want to be fair across the board so that we have the safety and justice combination. One is not a, a trade-off for the other. But it seems like, um, you know, a prosecutor can fix some of these problems just by senten uh, sentencing or asking for sentences that seem more reasonable. So, you know, if the judge can impose a 10-year sentence for a pretty minor crime, that doesn't mean that the prosecutor has to ask for 10 years. They could ask for three. That is correct. And that is actually, in my opinion, uh, the responsibility of the prosecutor. Because if you look in the criminal justice system, you have the three uh, parties who are most integrally involved is the judge. In Virginia, the judge is not voted by the people. He's appointed by the General Assembly. It could be a very political uh, assignment. Then you have the defense attorney. The defense attorney is responsible for their client. The prosecutor is directly voted into office by the people. Their job is to represent the people. And the people include the victims. It includes the accused. It includes everybody involved in the system, including those who don't realize they're part of the system, which is the community and how they're impacted. So we have a direct obligation to our community to do what is right. So if we have a case like that bad check example that I gave you, what I have to look at is I have to look at what is the dollar cost to incarcerate somebody. So if we incarcerate somebody at a local level in Loudoun County, it costs a hundred, I'm sorry, it costs $166 a day, which equates to about $66,000 a year to serve a full 12 months. On the Department of Corrections state level, it's about $25,000. So if I have somebody who wrote a bad check, and in Virginia right now, the threshold for felony is, is, has just become 500 dollars so if somebody writes a $502 check, can I convict them of a felony? Sure, heck, I can. Can I hold them in, in the prison for a long period of time? Sure, I can. But what is the impact to my community? I'm stealing resources from the community that could maybe be used to these programs, to alternative court systems. And by that, I mean what we call specialty courts, drug court, mental health court, the uh uh, veterans court, things that actually go to trying to figure out what is the solution for the underlying behavior. Why would that not be the better investment? And that's where our approach is as prosecutors has to be. Can we ask for less? Should we? Hell yes. Every friggin' day, all day. Because we're the ones who are more intimately um, familiar with the cases and what the history is of that person. The judge may get it 15, 20 minutes in advance. They are going to do what they can do but with very limited information. We have a lot more information, and that is our obligation to the community. So how can 
prosecutors uh, deal with problems such as racial disparities in the criminal justice system? By looking at data, um, I would suggest it to you by talking to just the general public, knowing my community, including the prosecutors who were in office before, the judges, uh, all that. I, I don't think our system is set up or being supported by what we think is outright racist individuals. So I'm not making that allegation, but implicit or inherent bias is something that we have to be knowledgeable about. And the only way we really can determine how we've been doing in our community relative to race is going to be by looking at data. Look at who's being charged. Why is there more, you know, and, and this is just such an anecdotal thing that is common knowledge, but just something as simple as possession of marijuana. Why do we have more African-Americans charged with possession of marijuana than we do you know, uh, Caucasians. I I am in a community that is predominantly Caucasian. I'm in a community where these these young people have means and can get marijuana any day, every day, and majority, not to say the majority, um, a fair amount of them actually consume marijuana. So why is it then that those aren't being um, charged in a level that's consistent with our population demographics? Well, you've got the over-policing, you've got the presumptions, you've got the bias. You have all these things that come to place that affect who gets charged. When we look at data and we can say, you know what, in this particular month, you had 100 cases of possession of marijuana and 75 of them were African-American. However, 7% of our community is African-American. How do we address that? And please, this, the data that I'm addressing is not a, uh, an accurate reflection of the numbers in our community. That's just by example. Um, so how do we address it? Then we have to look at what is the behaviors, what's the expectation, what are we doing? That educates us as to where our actions and our resources are going on charging. And when they come before the court, how are we as the prosecutor's office addressing them? And in our minds, I think everybody wants to be fair. Everybody thinks they're fair. And how I can um, justify why I did something in case A versus case B, I could do that all day long. You know, the person was in college, the person was not in college, the person had a job, the person didn't have a job. You know, the, the person confessed, the person didn't confess. I mean, just so many different ways that you can uh, rationalize why you make a decision, that's fine, but that becomes anecdotal. When you look at data and you say, holy shucks, look at the difference in the level as to how individuals were treated, and if we just base it on the race factor, that's the one filter that we look at, what is that telling us? It doesn't make us racist, it just may make us ignorant as to how we really are, are distributing justice. And I think, um, you know, one of the big issues is that if you look at pretty much every survey on, on drug use, um, you know, it shows that, in fact, whites and blacks, just to use one example, use drugs at about the same rate. And yet, then you drill down further and you find that, uh, you know, 80% of the people prosecuted for drug charges are people of color, not white people. How is that happening? And I think it's part of it comes to the following. When you have a traffic stop, how much effort are you making to searching the car of the 18-year-old white male versus the 18-year-old black male? And is it because I think because you're black that you must be using, so therefore I'm going to make every effort to do it. I think because you're white, 
said, no, you wouldn't be doing this, or man, I don't want to fight anything because that's going to ruin your chances for a successful life. All those things are the, the implicit bias part because it starts there. What's your, as law enforcement, what is your engagement with those individuals? And then what are we doing with charging them? We, we have some officers in our community that will not charge some individuals for a very small amount of marijuana. If we look at that data, is that disparity to who is being let go and who is not? So those are things that data should help us to try to identify because otherwise it's literally it's anecdotal and we're missing the, the big picture. We're missing as to what it really means. And it was really interesting talking to Larry Krasner from Philadelphia a few weeks ago. He said that their office now um, is really investing millions of dollars into data collection, um, you know, and, and basically his rationale is, hey, we need to know what's happening. We need to know what we're doing. Um, and, you know, then we'll have the data to back up either what we're doing or, or force us to change. Um, so it sounds like you're making some kind of commitment to do something like that as well. We are, but uh, the challenges we have is that within our community, um, when we don't have the resources to be able to do the, the millions of dollars to be able to get a new data collection system or a new uh, case management system or to have the personnel to be able to enter that data. So we have to figure out is how to, on the cheap, be able to try to determine that. And that's going to require us to figure out how do we best uh, use the data that might be available through our Virginia Supreme Court uh, Office of Executive um, Secretary, which does the collection of how many cases are, are filed each year, how they're disposed of, um, trying to create a system within our existing system that we could collect the data if it's entered and be able to analyze that. So we have some of those challenges regarding data, but it is a priority for our office. Are you going to be looking at uh, anything post-conviction? Uh, there are wrongful conviction units, and then there are also... Uh, coming up around the ca uh, country, uh, sentence review. So somebody's uh, sentenced for too long. Uh, you know, sometimes prosecutor offices can examine those cases and make recommendations for early release. I don't know what what that's uh, what possibility there is for that in uh, under current Virginia law, though. Okay, so uh, you you've nailed kind of one of the impediments is that Virginia is very restrictive and constrictive, where you can review a sentencing order within 21 days of its finality. You can appeal it within 30 days. Once that 30 days is done, really unless there's been what we call an actual innocence claim, where you could prove actual innocence, not that... <laughs> um, I am innocent and that's fine. It has to be that there was, there was no reasonable juror who could decide that you were guilty, which is an obscene standard. Then you have the situation where can you do, um, as far as your attorney having not been um, diligent and able to provide the, the appropriate services to you. That also is kind of a high bar because Virginia has held that you're not entitled to the best attorney, you're entitled to an attorney. And you, and you think like, oh my God, what the heck does that mean? Um, that's another standard that's just uh, not appropriate for that. So 
in essence, what we're left with as prosecutors is working with our legislation, legislators and saying, how do we, in that particular case, um, help them to change the law, that we can actually do this. If somebody has a sentence that is excessive and it just maybe was a reaction out of anger or ill advisement, I have no idea what, how you would come to that, but that that's the way to review it. That might go hand in hand with how we come back and we look at cases for parole. So if you've got somebody who had a long sentence, can we have a built-in process that their case has to be reviewed after 10 years or five years, whatever the magic number is, to say, because the person who you were decades ago may not be the person you are today. The threat that you may have presented decades ago may not be the same threat you present today. So we have to figure out a way how to go back instead of being so caught up on a process that we actually start focusing on the people. We have to have a situation where we sit here and say, how are we actually better serving our community by having these, you know, decades and scores of years sentences for somebody who was not a threat to the community, um, but now is really just what we're doing is we're letting them die in prison to do what? And it has to be a process, and that's going to have to be hand-in-hand with the legislatures. But it seems like the legislature might be more willing to look at some of these things now, right? Um, they are. This year, what we did in Virginia is uh, our General Assembly, both sides, is now a majority Democrat. And I don't know if it's a matter of salvaging their political careers or them actually seeing the light, but we have individuals who are running on Democratic, I'm sorry, on the Republican ticket, who are seeing that, you know what, we do need to make some changes. This is the old ways, not the way that our citizenry is comfortable with running things anymore. You know, we're more educated, we're more civilized, for the love of God. We we just got to do things differently because the the so-called law and order is the right word. The law and order should not mean everything gets punished to the max. Because we don't have endless wealth that we can waste resources. We don't have endless people, number of resources in our human factor that we can do that. Our, our unemployment level is about to 3%. Who, who are the employers going to hire if we completely exclude everybody who may have had a, a record in the past? Or, you know, if we don't create opportunities for them when they're released for them to be successful. So these are things that, from a fiscal and a business perspective, conservatives from every side of the political um, aisle has to understand that this is a cost to the community that we have to be mindful about. Otherwise, we're going to bankrupt the community. And I think that's where with the legislature, they're looking at it because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's about the fiscal accountability. How are we using our resources? And do you see the state law as being the chief obstacle to reform or are you getting uh, resistance from other quarters as well? Uh, the state law would be the, the chief resistance because of this reason. That's what judges then can use as a reason why they don't want to do things that uh, you as a prosecutor are promoting and asking for as relief. So those are the things that uh, the legislature can assist us with by making it clear in the law that this is what can be done. And what are your plans for the future? Uh, what does that mean? In terms of your office. office. The next four years? Yeah. Uh, 
Well, what we are going to do is we're going to create additional specialty courts. Right now we have a drug court in our circuit court level. It's adult only. I would like to have a juvenile drug court because if we're going to address drugs and how they impact individuals' lives, I think a wiser use of our resources would be to address it when they are in their teen years or young emerging adults. Because if we wait till you hit your 20s and your 30s, now you've been entrenched in drugs for years and years or decades. It's hard at that point to really undo all of that muscle memory and the addiction factors and behaviors. So if we could do it at an earlier age, we have the benefit that uh, young people live with families, parents most of the time. So you've got an extra set of stabilizers. Um, they're in a school system. So you have more people within the community who can contribute to their success. And then obviously uh, the services in the courts, we can do that. But then it becomes much more of a community village approach rather than what we see once they hit 18 where you don't have those same stabilizers. I would like for us to have a veterans court because what we also find is that um, mental health is a little bit different from those who've been involved in the military, and we have to be mindful. It also is not necessarily to be looked at that we're rewarding somebody for something and punishing somebody for something else, but just saying that their needs are different, and if we want them to be successful, then we have to treat them with the right treatment, and there's that's a different population versus than just maybe our traditional mental health uh, needs individuals. I would like for us to be able to work more programs that actually do what we call pre-plea dispositions. So if you have somebody who's charged with a low offense, low level uh, crime, that we could deal with them on the front side, so maybe they don't even come into the court system, so that their records are not negatively impacted um, by job applications or even the uh, college applications where they ask the questions, you know, what involvement have you had with the courts? Is that could be something that's not been formalized, and they could say none, and that doesn't take them away from those opportunities. I would like to work with the legislatures to make it easier to have expungements. In Virginia, if you've been um, convicted of a, let's say, shoplifting charge when you were age 18, that stays with you for the rest of your life. And the question becomes from a punishment perspective, when is enough enough? Is five years with the record being clean good? Is 10 years? Is 15? I mean, it's got to be something less than life. That just it doesn't make any sense that we don't have a system in place for people to be able to have earned uh, forgiveness from the system. They've done their crime. They've paid the consequences. They've done what they needed to do to make the community whole. So now we have to do is give them the opportunity to be successful and then for, for them to be treated as a whole citizen rather than a second or third grade. Well, we want to thank you so much for coming on our show today. Well, thank you very much for having us. And more importantly, thank you for sharing this information with our community. Definitely. It was Buda Biberai. She was elected last year as Commonwealth Attorney in Loudoun County, Virginia. And it's really interesting to have these conversations all over the country and listen to the very different circumstances on the ground. We were in San Francisco over the weekend and watching the reaction to Chase Bodine's announcement. And he's dealing with very different issues than they're dealing with in Virginia. And Virginia definitely have to deal with state law that uh, is restricting a lot of the reforms that they're putting into place. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again soon for another episode. 
Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.